The Eagle and Child, Episode 21. Mere Christianity, Book 3, Chapter 8, The Great Sin. Hello, and welcome to The Eagle and Child, the hallowed pub of the Inklings. This is a podcast where each week, my friend Matt and I share a beer, and we discuss the writings of the author known to the world as Clive Staples Lewis, or C.S. Lewis, or just as Jack to his friends. My name is David, and once again I'm joined by a man who I'm proud, not in a bad way, to call my friend, Matt. Oh, I'm starting to think I've guilted you into, after, after pointing out that a number of those I think were negative introductions to me, <laughs> you're, you're starting to switch to the positive ones again. Well, at the book group, I, I got it in the neck from some people. They say I've been mean to you. You did, and this just reminded <laughs> me of that whole conversation we had. It's just a shame we're not going to be able to do it because it's not going to make it through editing. <laughs> you know, this is totally going to make it through editing. <laughs> Friends, if you remember, was it last week's episode, David, when we were talking about... No, The Christian Marriage. It was a couple episodes ago, two episodes, when I discussed The Notebook, and David just ripped me apart. Well, we brought this up at our, our monthly book club, C.S. Lewis Club, and a couple girls that know David well pointed out he is the epitome of just watching tons of chick flicks. <laughs> I mean, the things that they were listing off, they were mortified. They wanted to come to my defense on the podcast and point out how hypocritical David was with that comment. I stand by everything. <laughs> I felt very vindicated. Well, it's a shame this conversation will never be published. <laughs> oh, man. Well, going back to your comment of the being proud to be a friend of mine, I, I'm proud to call you a friend, especially after this past week, uh, listeners, friends, David did a theology on tap. That was actually brilliant. Actually brilliant. Huh. I, I, I had high expectations, <laughs> but you, you surpassed them. First of all, it was an awesome message. He gave a beautiful talk, but he's incredibly funny. I mean, no joke. I laughed so <laughs> much. He had the crowd roaring, genuinely roaring. And it's, it's, it, it was recorded. So, I mean, David, where is it going to be found? Uh, it'll be up on the, my website, restlesspilgrim.net. It'll be available on the podcast feed for my talks, which is called Theology with an English Accent. And it will also be on the San Diego Theology on Tap podcast feed. Oh, that was a mouthful. Mm. <laughs> Friends, coming back to the chapter, I'm excited because we're going to be asking the question, what is the great sin? And after we answer that, we're going to begin looking at the question, why is it the great sin? And I think the answer is brilliant. The reason is it contradicts the two greatest commandments in the Christian faith. The first commandment being love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, and with all your strength. The second greatest commandment, love your neighbors yourself. The great sin, and if you haven't put two and two together yet, pride puts you in competition with the other, with your neighbor. You can't love them. And second, if you're prideful, you don't need God. It almost puts you in competition with God. And so we're going to look at and unpack those questions and analyze that. And so I'm excited to jump in. But first, what's the question of the day? It's a good one. It's from the screw tape letters. Your patient has become humble. Have you drawn his attention to the fact? All virtues are less formidable to us once the man is aware that he has them. But this is especially true of humility. Catch him at the moment when he is really poor in spirit and smuggle into his mind the gratifying reflection. By Jove, I'm being humble. 
and almost immediately pride. Pride at his own humility will appear. If he awakes to that danger and tries to smother this new form of pride, make him proud of his attempt, and so on, through as many stages as you please. But don't try this too long, for fear you awake his a sense of humor in proportion, in which case he will merely laugh at you and go to bed. I love the screw tape letters. <laughs> so do I. I like that too. The reason I selected it is as we jump into pride here, it's the greatest tool, I believe, and I don't know if you think so, David, but in Satan's toolbox. Mm-hmm. Once I even noticed this in my own life, I'll talk about it a little later, but overcoming a sin and working through a sin. And then I noticed I got really prideful. So was I better off afterwards? I don't know. So that's the quote. What are we drinking today? Ooh, friends, I decided to treat David to some account 12 in, in, in thanks and gratitude for his, was it Lefroig 16 year? Mm-hmm. It was delicious. So this is my favorite scotch of all time. This was actually the first scotch I ever drank. Not very peaty, very smooth, single malt. Cheers. Cheers. Oh, actually a toast. Uh, you know, Brandon Voigt? He's the content director yes. at Word on Fire with Bishop Barron. He just had a new son, Gilbert Lewis Voigt. Oh my goodness. So Please tell me he listens to our podcast. I'm sure he does. We probably should point out, just for listeners, Gilbert is G.K. Chesterton. Mm-hmm. And Lewis is C.S. Lewis and, of course, my middle name. I think it might be more to do with me I thought than Lewis. so. Anyway, cheers. Cheers. Yeah, I like that. Have you ever had it? I don't think I have. Or at least, really? not, or at least not knowingly. Describe it. I hate trying to give tasting notes. You have a real warmth at the back of your throat. It's not too much attack up front. Yeah, there's not a lot in your tongue. A little bit of citrus. And then beyond that, I'm making it up. (laughs) So let's get on. (laughs) That was actually better than I was expecting. Thank you. So. What's the great sin, David? Well, as you already said, it's pride. I really should have left that out and said. That's okay. We We had to let the cat out of the bag eventually. Lewis says that this is a vice which is a universal sin, and it's also universally loathed when seen in others. I can attest to that last part. <laughs> yes. And Lewis has some very interesting comments to kick this off. He says, It's the vice of which no man in this world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else, and which hardly any people except Christians ever imagine they are guilty of themselves. That surprises me a little bit. I mean, what do you think about that? Well, I first, I agree with the first part completely. Speaking of my own self, whenever I see someone just arrogant or boastful, always pisses me off, (laughs) which we learn later in the chapter is a bad sign for me. It's a bad sign. (laughs) But that second part, though, I don't know if, I think he's being a little generous to Christians. I typically don't hear really anybody accuse themselves of pride, except after they've had a humiliating fall. That's usually the only thing which I would say generally gets people to admit it. We're going to talk about this later in the chapter too, pride relative to the other sins. But I think it's the hardest one for people to see, mm-hmm. per se. I mean, the sin of lust, the sin of greed, the sin of anger are very tangible. And they're much more obvious. They're much more obvious, yes. To other people and to ourselves. Whereas pride, pride can go in camouflage for quite a, quite a considerable length. If you remember when we were talking about sexual morality, Lewis emphasized that this is not the primary sin. This isn't the greatest sin. This isn't the root of all evil. 
Today, we get to talk about what that actually is, and that's pride. That is the center of Christian morality. Yeah, he says that according to Christian teachers, it's the essential vice, the utmost evil, and that it's through pride that the devil became the devil. And pride leads to every other vice because it's the complete anti-God state of mind. It's unfortunate today if you meet Christians how often you can think that sexual morality is the greatest of all sins. When it's pride. Exactly. Now Lewis goes very strongly and he states, Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. That, that's bold. Mm-hmm. Flea bites. I mean, that, that hits home. I, I was, I'm reading that, and I'm, we're in a Lenten season right now. I'm thinking to myself, how often are most of our Lenten sacrifices uh, related to drunkenness? How often do people give up alcohol? I am right now, except on these episodes. <laughs> <laughs> but it's never, how often do you see someone saying, I'm going to give up being prideful? No, never done it. David's like, never will. (laughs) Never needed to. (laughs) Which leads us very neatly into the next section. Because according to Lewis, there's a simple test to find out how prideful we are. We just have to ask ourselves, how much do I dislike it when other people snub me? Or they refuse to take notice of me? Or shove their oar in? Or patronize me? Or show off? I hate it when people tell me I'm wrong. (laughs) I hate it when they're actually right and I'm wrong. Well, he says that this is an effective test because pride is inherently competitive. I'm annoyed about somebody else being the center of attention at a party because, well, I wanted to be the center of attention at the party. And then he says something rather chilling. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good looking, but they are not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better looking than others. It is the comparison that makes you proud. The pleasure of being above the rest. Lewis says that pride is often misidentified. It's often mistaken for some other vice. And he gives two examples. The first is greed and the second is lust. So with regards to greed, he says that greed drives you to want more money so you can buy better things. But there reaches a point when you've really got more than enough money to buy all the luxuries you could ever possibly enjoy. It's at this point that pride takes over. You're pursuing riches not for the riches themselves, but so you can be richer and more powerful than some other rich and powerful man. And then next up we have lust. Lewis gives the example of you have this beautiful woman who's going around and she's very flirtatious and collecting admirers wherever she goes and breaking hearts and breaking hearts spreading misery and that also that there's no way that's actually lust she's not lusting after all of these men it's pride she wants to know she can get them and by the way that men do that too we don't want to see her bag on beautiful (laughs) women (laughs) yes us beautiful men have the same issue Lewis sums up the competitive nature of pride in this way. He says, If I am a proud man, then as long as there is one more man in the whole world who is more powerful or richer or cleverer than I, he is my rival and my enemy. I think of the articles that point out Jeff Bezos just surpassed Bill Gates in wealth. In in writing articles as if, oh my goodness, he's been dethroned. I don't think Bill Gates really cares one bit. Yeah, it's not a zero-sum game. No. What makes it so bad is while other vices can bring people together, 
because of its competitive nature, pride can't. Imagine you have people coming together drinking and they're in drunkenness. They might actually be really enjoying each other's company. By default, you can have good come out of that, even out of drunkenness. Pride, though, there's no way that happens. It pushes people apart. Lewis says pride always means enmity. It is enmity. It's always competitive. Because pride is itself enmity, a proud man naturally runs into problems in relation to God because he's automatically in competition with God. Lewis says, In God, you come up against something which is in every respect immeasurably superior to yourself. Unless you know God as that, and therefore know yourself as nothing in comparison, you do not know God at all. As long as you're proud, you can't know God. And this is going back to what we mentioned in the introduction. It puts you in competition with people. It puts you in competition with God. That's why it's the greatest vice of all. Lewis now tackles an important question. How is it that prideful people can describe themselves as very religious? I don't know. It's not too hard for me. I'm (laughs) doing it quite well. Or a word I hate even more, pious. Oh, yeah. It just has connotations. That is a pretty nasty word. (laughs) But it shouldn't be. It shouldn't be. No. But you do hear this question and or complaint often by non-religious people. They complain that religious people are prideful. So should that really surprise us? Well, yes and no. Yes, it should surprise us because typically religious people are meant to live at a higher moral standard. But no, because, well, why would we expect religious people to be exempt from certain vices? They're no less human. You just said that religious people are often accused of pride. Mm -hmm. You think that assessment is correct? Sometimes. (laughs) I mean, sure. Explain yourself. (laughs) Sure, but not always. Yeah, very political. Well, (laughs) he'd be a great politician. (laughs) Well, Lewis is actually going to address this in a later chapter in the book about what Christianity does to people. Does it make them better? I remember that. But for the purpose of this episode, we're only really considering the situations where that criticism is valid, where somebody does regard themselves as religious, even highly religious, and yet are full of pride. We're trying to answer the question, how is it that that can happen? I'd probably begin by asking, are they even religious? Well, Lewis says that, well, they're worshipping a god, but it's an imaginary god. He says that they theoretically admit themselves to be nothing in the presence of this phantom god, but they are really at the same time just imagining how much he approves of them and how this imaginary god thinks them so much better than ordinary people. Jeez. I mean, hearing that makes me think, am I that person? And you should be worried. (laughs) (laughs) Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. Not because you're you, but just because pride is that insidious. This question really, I think, should give us pause for thought. Does this describe me? Fortunately, Lewis gives us another test that we can apply to see if we're being prideful in this way. Lewis says that when our religious life is making us feel like we're really good, and more importantly, better than everyone else, he says we can be certain that we're being acted on not by God, but by the devil. And he says that the real test of being in the presence of God is that when you're in this presence of God, you'll either forget about yourself altogether or you'll just see yourself as a small, dirty little object. And he recommends that you just forget about yourself altogether. The first litmus test, I feel like I passed to some degree. I feel, I feel when I'm trying to become a better person, I'm constantly failing. I don't actually feel like I'm really better than others. Mm-hmm. That second one, though... I don't know if I passed that one, so 
so well. I don't forget about myself. Uh, I almost focus so much on myself, like bettering myself for myself. It's if that makes any sense. Like I feel like if I can become that true Christian that can love the world, I'll I'll experience peace. I'll experience joy, which is kind of self centered too. Like I want peace. I want joy. I want contentment. I want to be able to love better, and so that's why I'm doing this. I think it's very reasonable, but I also think it's very deadly. Yeah. Because as soon as we spend all of our time focusing on ourselves, everything else shuts down. We care less about God, and we care less about other people. I'm thinking right now, as we talk about forgetting yourself and putting others first, I'm going through the 33 Days to Morning Glory again. I like to do it on Lent. And I'm in this section right now, St. Maximilian Colby. Oh, love that guy. Yeah, I, I actually, surprisingly, I've done this a couple times, and I've never dug into his story. Oh, it's phenomenal. Yeah, so he goes He goes to Auschwitz, puts himself in, he sees someone else that is going to go to the starving chamber. He volunteers to go to the starving chamber with 10 other people. While he's there, he, he lasts the longest. He's like praying. He's. They, they could hear singing from they the could starvation hear sing- bunker. I mean, this guy was the most selfless person. He, he could have hid from Auschwitz. He wanted to go to be with people. He could have. He, he wasn't called to go to the starving chamber. He volunteered to go to the starving chamber. I'm like, my goodness, one after another after and he, another. And he offered his arm when they went to yes. go and inject him to finally kill him. It, it's truly a beautiful story. I was moved by it. And, and then my thought was, oh, gosh, I want to be that kind of person. And then I'm like, and this is why I don't feel better than others, because I thought, wow, I am so far from that. Someone, I'm at the gas station a few weeks ago. Someone starts chatting with me, and I'm just trying to think how do I end this conversation to get out of here? <laughs> you are completely taking me away from getting to my workplace. Well, I think the antidote is one of the other people in that book, 33 Days to Morning Glory, Mother Teresa, St. Teresa of Calcutta. Her saying was, God doesn't call us to do great things, but small things with great love. I feel like I'm more on the path to great things with small love. <laughs> So Lewis says that it's better just to forget about yourself altogether. And I did want to point out that this line here is one of the two main sources in this chapter for a misattribution of the quotation, humility is not thinking less of yourself, is actually thinking of yourself less. Now, this idea is definitely congruent with Lewis's thought, but he never wrote it anywhere. That you destroyed everything when you mentioned this to me. <laughs> this is probably the number one quote I say of Lewis, because I think it's so brilliant. But it's not Lewis, at least not in this form. It's from Rick Warren's book, The Purpose Driven Life. I've actually read that. It's a, it's a good book. Okay. It's, yeah. got, it's got a lot, lot to recommend it. But I've been listening to the All About Jack podcast and the host of that, William, he's publishing a book on C.S. Lewis misquotes and he put together an article for Christianity Today and this was one of them. So particularly as I've been prepping the quotations for our Instagram account, please follow us, I'm now utterly paranoid to make sure I can find the actual source text for every quotation. Bringing it back to the question of why pride is so bad, Lewis reminds us of something he pointed out in the chapter on sexual morality. The worst sins are spiritual rather than just animal. He says that pride comes from hell. Because it's purely spiritual, it's more subtle and more deadly. That's pretty intense. And he says that actually pride can even be used to beat down simpler vices. He gives the example of teachers appealing to a boy's pride or self-respect to make him behave decently. And he says that many men overcome things like cowardice or lust or ill temper by learning to think of it as beneath his dignity, basically using pride to kill the other vice. 
This stuff is right out of the screw tape letters. Lewis says, the devil laughs. He is perfectly content to see you becoming chaste and brave and self-controlled, provided all the time he is setting up in you the dictatorship of pride. Just as he would be quite content to see your chillblains cured if he was allowed in return to give you cancer. I read this book the first time my junior year in college. And I, I'm a huge underliner. I put lots of notes in the margins. And when I was rereading this chapter just this past week, I'm seeing the notes I wrote in the margins. And so I'm reading my notes in the margins. And I had multiple F-bombs because this rocked my world. I was a little bit less refined back then. So excuse my <laughs> You weren't the sophisticated man that stands no. before me today. No, I wasn't. I'm kind of glad I wrote that because that's how much it rocked my world. At this time period in my life, I was working on chastity. And how I was struggling with it wasn't going around necessarily hooking up with people, but it was in my own personal life, masturbation and pornography. And I hated that I was looking at pornography. And I remember thinking to myself, I'm better than these people. Like it wasn't a spiritual thing where I felt bad. I felt, you know, today... If I were to tell or work with people through it, I'd be talking about how much it hurts your own life, how much it hurts the people on the other side, how much it prevents you from loving. There, all I said to myself was, I'm better than these people that look at pornography. I'm not part of that 70 or 80% or whatever it is. I'm part of the 20%. Like that's, that's what went through my mind. And then I read this and I'm like, wow, I'm worse off. This section was very problematic for me too. The thing that it reminded me of was high school. I hated high school so very, very much. And I developed an extremely low opinion of most of my classmates. On the plus side, it helped nurture strength and the ability to stand up against popular opinion and the crowd. The downside was, though, that it really did nurture pride. I really started thinking of myself as better than these Luddites. And there's a passage that's going to be coming up in a little bit that really describes my internal monologue while I was out at school perfectly. But we'll get to that in a moment. And before we do, as we turn to this last section in the chapter, Lewis is going to start going through some misunderstandings of pride. The first misconception relates to receiving praise. Is it pride to enjoy being praised by others? And, you know, if you're as great as Matt, I'm sure you have to get used to this sort of thing. I'm telling you, man, it's not as easy as you think. <laughs> no, but in seriousness... After this last week watching you and the Theology on Tap, I think this applies to you just as much as it does to me. Well, shucks. Yeah, you, you, uh, you were you unreal up there. <laughs> I mean, I, afterwards, people were coming up giving you praise left and right. Well, am I prideful if I enjoy this highly insightful, accurate praise which is being poured upon me? <laughs> <laughs> well, see, according to C.S. Lewis, not necessarily. Because well, he's not always right. <laughs> He's definitely right in this case. He says that a child who's pat on the back for doing his lesson well, or the woman whose beauty is praised by her lover, or the soul in heaven who's greeted by Christ with, well done, my good and faithful servant, well, they're pleased and they ought to be. And it's okay because the pleasure lies in the fact that you've pleased somebody that you wanted and rightly wanted to please. I'm going to seed with you that in this case, Lewis is correct. Mm -hmm. Not pride, David. <laughs> Not pride. But... It can become problematic. When you transition from, I've pleased him all is well, to what a fine person I am, that's when the problem begins. Because then you've started to delight more in yourself than the praise. Exactly. 
And Jack says that this is why vanity, when compared to pride, actually isn't that bad. I thought this was interesting. Yeah, he says it's still a fault, but it's a childlike and in an odd way even a humble fault. Because it shows that you're not yet completely content with your own admiration. So, regarding your praise of my talk, I may not be prideful, I may simply be vain. <laughs> Just like the time that Carly Simon wrote a song about me. <laughs> this is... Oh, this is making me think of our time two weeks ago. The yes. same girls that pointed out how hypocritical <laughs> David is to me. We all ended up watching a, a movie. We decided... We had a, we had a rom-com night. It we was, did. To be fair, it was around Valentine's Day. It was. We'd been reading The Four Loves in the Morning, talking about Eros. And so we naturally thought, let's start with Eros from Lewis and end with How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days. <laughs> Pretty natural segue, right? Yes. In which they sing this song by Carly Simon. <laughs> Such a great You're scene. You're so vain. <laughs> Uh, That's a great movie. But the real problem lies when you don't care at all, Mm. which is exactly what you're talking about earlier, your high school days. Is this the paragraph actually you're talking about? Yeah, yeah. Lewis says that the real black diabolical pride comes when you look down on others so much that you don't care what they think of you. He says that the prideful man says, why should I care for the applause of the rabble as if their opinions were worth anything? (laughs) That's harsh. Yeah, that that was my internal monologue at high school. Yeah, Lewis says, the devil loves carrying a small fault by giving you a great one. We must try not to be vain, but we must never call in our pride to cure our vanity. Better the frying pan than the fire. Now, the second misconception concerns being proud of a son, a father, a school, a regiment, or a podcast. Now, the term is a little confusing depending upon the context, because when we talk about being proud of a father, a school, a podcast, very often it can simply mean a warm-hearted admiration for something. And this clearly isn't a sin. However, it may also mean that someone starts putting on airs and thinking themselves better than other people because of their distinguished son, father, school, whatever. And, And here, once again, Lewis points out, while this is a fault, it's still better than simply being proud of yourself. Mm hmm To love and admire anything outside yourself is to take one step away from utter spiritual ruin. Though we shall not be well so long as we love and admire anything more than we love and admire God. The next misconception about pride is the belief that God is worried about our pride because of his own dignity. And Lewis says that this isn't the primary issue. It's that pride prevents us from coming to know God. God wants you to know him wants to give you himself. If you really get into any kind of touch with him, you will, in fact, be humbled, delightfully humbled, feeling the infinite relief of having for once got rid of the silly nonsense about your own dignity, which has made you restless and unhappy for all your life. Now, the fourth and final misconception about pride is its corresponding virtue, humility. My favorite virtue. Lewis says, the whole idea of humility is often misunderstood. When it comes to a humble person, he will not be a sort of greasy, smarmy person who is always telling you that, of course, he's a nobody. Have you ever read uh, David Copperfield by Dickens? No. There's a character in there called Uriah Heep. And throughout the book, he's always telling people how humble he is. Out of curiosity, I'm going to really make myself sound unintelligent right now. Is this book about the magician David Copperfield? Is that pure point? I mean, Dickens is way before him, right? Dickens is way before him, right? It's not about the magician. 
Just making sure. No. <laughs> Let's hope that gets I'm leaving that in. That was <laughs> wonderful. I'll take it. I'm like, Dickens is way older than David Copperfield. I'm really confused right now. For a the second, magician. I thought maybe actually would have been a better way of phrasing this that wouldn't have made me sound so stupid and what I was genuinely thinking. Did David Copperfield like create this pseudo name off of the book Dickens? I'm let's, just saying let's, that's a let's, safe let's move on. I have, <laughs> what I, I have what I need here. Oh, ouch. Look at this. We're helping Matt develop humility. Uh, I do feel very humbled right now. Well, when speaking about somebody who is truly humble, Lewis says that it's not what you would expect. He says, if you meet someone that's truly humble, all that you'll think about them is that they're very cheerful and intelligent and that they take a real interest in you. And he says, if you actually do dislike this person, it'll be because you feel a little envious that anybody enjoys life so easily. And this is the other line that often leads to that Rick Warren quotation. The humble man will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. Lewis closes by pointing us to the path which leads to humility. He says that the first step is to realize that one is proud. Check. <laughs> and it's a biggish step too. He says, at least nothing can be done before it. Until we accept that we're prideful, we can't do anything about it. And he says, if you think you're not conceited, it means you're very conceited indeed. Are you humble, Matt? I think after that comment I made earlier, <laughs> I am. I'm feeling pretty humbled right now. Excellent. Excellent. We've just got you a little closer to heaven. Are you humble, David? I don't think about it. You're so full of it. <laughs> uh, great chapter. As usual, my outline and links to the resources will be in the show notes. Please remember to share this podcast with your friends and enemies. Because, yes, remember, you have to love your enemies too. Soon we'll be doing a mailbag episode. So if you have any questions or comments, feel free to contact us at restlesspilgrim.net or on Twitter or on the Instagram at Pints with Jack. And until next time, Further up and further in. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs>